0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to to invite you now to join me in Matthew chapter 5. We'll try to pick up where we've left off, and uh, we've been trekking through the gospel of Matthew. That is the first gospel and the first book of the New Testament, and so uh, we're going to try to pick up where we've left off in the fifth chapter. The Sermon on the Mount is where we find ourselves. That's the the title for it. The, The Sermon on the Mount is, in this case, one of the most famous, if not the most famous sermon ever recorded. And it it is from chapter five through chapter seven. It is the the first, in this sense, significant public discourse or teaching or preaching that Jesus does according to Matthew. And so as he's introducing us to who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished, he does so first by, by introducing him in the first four chapters as someone who identifies with sinners in their genealogy and, and even in their place, taking the place and doing the kinds of things that, that a sinner would do, or, or not, not sinning, but belonging or, or kind of occupying spaces that you would say, is it that where a sinner belongs? And, and so that we would see that, that this Messiah, as Matthew would, would want us to know this, Christ who willingly jumps in the place of and bears the brunt of and the burden for sinners is is also in this case pointing to himself and who he is in his teaching. Now, the the, the mount is a, a particularly important thing because in the history of the Bible up to this point, one of the most significant stories is the story of Moses and the Exodus. That is, that God used Moses to deliver his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And 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 when he made his way out to the wilderness they went to what was called Mount Sinai and and this deliverer that is Moses went to a mountain and then began to bring God's word and his law for his people. And so we're meant to see here, Matthew is kind of winking and and being as overt as he possibly can and saying, This Jesus came as a new Moses, a new deliverer who would get us free from the bondage and slavery of sin and death. And and oh, by the way, let me tell you a story about one time when he went on a mountain and brought God's law to his people. And so up to this point, we've been seeing how uh, Jesus offers an otherworldly perspective of his kingdom that is that in his rule and his reign things look different. His kingdom, as you've heard me say, is upside down in that sense His kingdom doesn't look like any other kingdom, and his teaching points to that so this last week we or two weeks ago we were in uh, we were in verse seventeen through twenty and so i want to I want to pick up in verse twenty kind of in that case, overlapping where we were two weeks ago and spending our time in Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 26. And so if you make your way there via a device or you'll even see a blue paperback Bible and a chair beneath you, I want you to join me. I want you to, to hold me, uh, to, to, I want you to hold me, don't take my word for it. I want you to hold me accountable here. This is I want you to hear Jesus teaching for what it's worth for a few different reasons. Um, first of all, like if you don't have a Bible, make that your gift. This is the most valuable thing that we could do together is to, to begin to open this book and, and hear God speak to us as it opens us up. But, but there's also something I, I, else going on. I share with you that this Sermon on the Mount is in in many ways the most popular and influential sermon ever preached. And so here I am trying to like expound upon by means of a sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached. And so on one hand, um, this is the most, uh, as I share with you, more has been published about this particular topic than any other place in the Bible. In that sense, we're doing nothing new. But but in this other sense, we're we're simply letting Jesus preach and teach, right? And so at the very least, you're going to hear a really great sermon today because I'm going to read you an excerpt from Jesus's, right? Uh, but on the other hand, there's, there's this This powerful humility. Like, who are we to begin to kind of improve upon what Jesus is teaching? So if you find yourself going like, hey man, he really missed the boat on that one, that's okay. Uh, Basically, you can just kind of encourage your friends. Like, hey, he was trying to like tell us about the Mona Lisa with a crayon. And that's just really not possible to do. And so... I invite you to show a lot of grace as we listen and begin to hear the greatest teacher, the greatest person, the greatest God come to be flesh among us, begin to expound upon what he's like and what his kingdom is like. So beginning in verse 20, we'll read Jesus preaching and teaching to his disciples and the people listening. Beginning in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We believe this is God's word and it comes even through God made flesh himself, that is Jesus. I want to compel you to consider an otherworldly kingdom. In this passage, we find what are known as the six antitheses. There are six of these in a row, and they all begin by saying something along the lines of, you have heard it was said in verse 21. If you're looking at your Bible, you can scroll or look down to verse 27. You have heard it was said, verse 31. It was also said, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said, And then in verse 38, you have heard that it was said. And then lastly in verse 43, the sixth and final of these antitheses, you have heard that it was said. And each of these, Jesus quotes a law, an Old Testament law, or at least summarizes, paraphrases, something that most people would have known, that to to be Jewish, to be a faithful, righteous, law-abiding Jewish person, that you would know what these are and you would live your life by them. But each of these, all six of them, if you look back again, right after he quotes a law that everyone would have known to be authoritative and right, he begins an antithesis. That is something that is in some way contrasting. He offers us six in a row paradoxes. So beginning in verse 22, but I say to you. And so the same thing happens in verse 28, but I say to you. Verse 32, but I say to you, but verse 34, but I say to you, verse 39, but I say to you, and then the last one, verse 44, but I say to you. Six times in a row, he quotes an an authoritative law that would have reflected the heart of God for his people, and he says, you've heard it, you know it's said, but I say to you. So ask yourself this question, who has the authority, authority to enact legislation? Who, in a in a given society or culture, has the authority to pass and enforce laws? And here Jesus is inviting us to an otherworldly view of the law, of what it means to be righteous and obedient. And he puts himself in a position of authority. I gave the analogy last, uh, last time we spoke on this, and it's the best I can come up with, but essentially you could fill in the blank with any sort of law that you and I know to be true. Like, right, you have heard it said, you must come to a complete stop at a stop sign. But I say to you, <laughs> right? Like right away, you would immediately be like, who? your first question would be like, who are you? Like what, <laughs> like who, right? Like Mr. Officer, pastor jonathan said like that (laughs) not gonna no don't just don't do it don't try it but you begin to see it, it it's it's absurd right like who would say that who would say you know there's an authoritative law but i have something to say that trumps it i have something to say that that is different from this and and you're already beginning to see what we'll see over the next couple of weeks is that jesus sets himself up as an authoritative interpreter and even i would say a legislator of god's word he is passing laws. He is enacting laws. He is interpreting. He is beginning to expound upon them in a way that is otherworldly. So, in this otherworldly teaching, we're meant to see what is, you saw, this kingdom. This kingdom of heaven. This kingdom of God. This, this otherworldly. Now, I don't mean otherworldly in, in, in a sense that it's somehow distant and and we're not a part of it, and that's not true at all. Instead, he's saying how our loyalty and citizenship in this otherworldly kingdom can be visible in our lives right here and now. So, let's begin to walk through what I what I think are three components of this teaching. Maybe this will help organize our thoughts through these, these few verses. The, the first one is simply just how practical this teaching is. It's, it's beautiful in how practical we are. Uh, we get a practical understanding. It's it's we are taught, we are instructed on, on what God is like and and His heart for His people. But but the second thing I want you to see is how impractical. This teaching is, such that lastly I think. When we kind of wrap up our time here, you'll see a picture. That's emerging in this teaching. So let's start with what's practical. There's something incredibly instructive to our understanding of, in this case, murder, anger, reconciliation. In this sense, being reconciled to one another, and even in the sense that we are reconciled to one another in a way that reflects our reconciled state before God. And so, in this sense, I I want to offer to you just a, a principle about the law. Because he begins in verse 21, you have heard it was said to those of old. And then he says, he kind of... He throws in, like, the first phrase is one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, but then he adds some other, in this sense, like the punishment that would have followed along that you will find elsewhere in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, so just start there, he he gives us a picture of what the law is, and and there's something we'll be talking about each week through this, but But broadly speaking, I want you to see here the the purpose of the law. That is, human behavior must be directed by a higher principle. There is something, there is a a motivating principle that that in this sense animates animates us. And so there's something instructive and practical here, isn't there? A couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus says that perfect righteousness is demanded, right? We saw that in verse 20. And he says that in response... We might say to Jesus after verse 20, well, tell me about this righteousness that exceeds the most most righteous people that anyone had heard of, the scribes and the Pharisees. What does it look like? And so what we see for these six antitheses is that Jesus gives us a thorough list to paint a picture of what the perfectly righteous and and obedient person looks like. And the way he does it is simply by saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Let me rephrase that for you, right? In light of this story of what the perfectly righteous and obedient person looks like in God's kingdom. It's as if he's saying, when I say righteous, right? When I say be righteous, when I say imagine a righteous person, you probably think, right, fill in the blank. When I say be righteous, something probably comes into mind. You probably think this i.e., you have heard it said. But it's as if Jesus is saying, when I say righteousness, what you ought to think is this. So when I say be righteous, be holy and obedient, you might think you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But when I say be righteous, what you ought to think practically is this. Everyone who is even angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So, think of, think of then this principle as a reflection of God's character. After all, laws aren't meant simply to restrain you and keep you from the fun and great things you want to accomplish. Instead, they reflect an intent, they, they reflect a picture of what it means to thrive. Think of it this way I might tell my children, Here's a good rule. Look both ways multiple times before you cross the street. But think of it. I, I have a deeper purpose. Like My, my, my deepest ambitions for my children is, that, is not that they would just not be hit by a car. Right? What, a, what a low bar. <laughs> my deepest ambitions for my children is that they would thrive. And it just so happens that oncoming traffic can hinder human thriving. I don't just want them to not get hit by a car. That is not even close to all that I hope for them. I want them to hear in my instruction how much I love and care for them. I want them to hear in my instruction to look both ways. I want them to hear in my instruction how much I want what's best for them. How much I don't want them to suffer unnecessarily. How I don't want to see them harmed. I don't want to see them harm one another. I I don't want to see that kind of suffering. And so while it might be that in that sense, a, a rule that would restrict their behavior. We're invited here to see the heart of God is actually deeper. I do want my children to look both ways before crossing the road. But ultimately, I want their behavior to be guided by a higher principle namely, that they would thrive, they would live a full and blessed life. It is the love of their father. And his desire for them to thrive that I want them to consider. And Jesus takes that, uh, that we see in the law, the desire of God that we would thrive, and in in some sense puts it on steroids, doesn't he? What's presented in this passage is not just a new law, but instead a deeper and a more lofty principle, a, a more broad and powerful guiding principle, that is, that would cause a new way of being. So in this sense... Jesus is showing that the heart of God is for his children to thrive, right? Just think about that. Use the analogy and apply it to your own life and and the lives of others. If I were to say, like, hey, what's my greatest hope for Connection Church? That they wouldn't murder anyone, right? Like, whew, no one murdered anyone today. Great. Win, right? There's a, that would be that, that just a low bar, right? That maybe there's a group in, there's a, there's a room where that's a good, that's a high and lofty goal. But in that sense, like, that's the bare minimum. But, but the heart of God isn't just that we would be restrained from lashing out out of anger, but instead, the heart of God is that we would thrive. That as He looks at you and me, and we see the guiding principle that He sees us as His children, He's welcoming back in Christ that in the same way none of you would want a child to harm another one of your children, so also God is showing us his heart here. And when God says don't murder, the picture we see here is of his heart for his children, that he loves them. He wants what's best for them. He wants them to thrive. And so just even for a moment here, think about how practical and how instructive that is for us. Isn't it good to know God's desire for you and me is is not superficial isn't it good to know that god loves and cares for his children more than just what's visible on the surface he loves our very heart and our very character our very being Think of it as like someone could watch you and you'd think they wouldn't really know you, but there are things about you, you that, that may never be known by the people around you, or even probably for yourself. And that's the person that God loves. That's the person, that, right? That, that secret internal life, that's the place where God wants to demonstrate his love and show you his desire for you to thrive. And so Jesus here is showing us with a great deal of urgency how we are to deal with, in this case, Sin. The other practical and instructive thing here is that not only is human behavior directed by a higher principle, in this case, Jesus wants us to see the higher principle is God's love, is God's desire for you and I to thrive. But he also wants us to thrive in the most inward way. But he gives us a picture of his heart. and, And here's the second bit of instruction I think we see here. It's very practical. He connects that it isn't just that it's murder, but I say that Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it isn't just that someone who murders is liable to judgment. He equates the deserving nature of judgment of murder with the deserving nature of judgment that comes with anger. Whoever insults his brother, literally the word is the word raka here, an Aramaic term, or a term that's kind of hard to it's an abusive term. It's hard to translate, but it's like, you fool, you idiot. And then it says that person will be, that that person who insults and calls someone an idiot will be liable to the council. And then whoever says you fool, that's a that's that word, it's, it's a word where we get the word moron. It's not just that you did a stupid thing, but you are, in this case, you nothing, you worthless person. You'll be liable to hell. <laughs> so I, I think, this is this is one of the things that will that will I know that since the inception of Connection Church, um, this will mess with some of you. This is this is for some of you raised in a religious background. Um, this will blow your mind, but it's something we have kind of heralded from the beginning. Um, that an outward an outwardly religious person can be just as lost as, as an irreligious person. And, and again, if you if you if you if you've heard Jesus teaching on this that God desires not just your outward behavior, not just to modify your, your appearance and outward behavior, but that God desires your whole self to be redeemed and drawn to him, then this won't shock you. But for many of you, who maybe you're religion, uh, raised in a religious background, this will blow your mind, right? You're saying a person who's outwardly religious and does all the religious things can be far from God. I, I, I mean, I loved it. Uh, Pastor Steve, who preached to us last week on the, on the parable of the lost son in Luke chapter 15, saw that, right? It wasn't just the, the rebellious, irreligious son who went off and wasted, uh, who wasted the father's treasure that rebelled against and, in that sense, disrespected and dishonored the father. It was also, right, he just used the father to get pleasure, right? But it was also the older brother who didn't receive him back who was using the father. It's just that he was using the father. They were both using the father for, for the treasure. Neither of them cared about the father or being like, like in the company of the father. And the older religious brother, right? The, this picture that Jesus was painting for the Pharisees in his midst. It would have been pretty radical for them to hear. Is like, Hey, when, when you think God owes you because you have some sort of righteousness in yourself, you are just as lost as the person who is squandering the father's wealth. Both of you need to be made right with the Father. And so you see here Jesus instructing along those lines, don't you? So this is instructive. This is practical for us. This helps us understand what sin really is. And this, I hope, even changes the way we talk about sin, the way we talk about God's grace towards sinners. But but this, this helps us practically how we are to fight sin, and that is at the heart level. Because think of it this way. It's one thing if if our evil deeds are subject to judgment, but what does he say? Every evil thought of ours is subject to judgment. And so that means that everything else, if we were to think about what's good and bad and everything else above the layer of our own heart and motive and attitude is by nature superficial. In some sense, it's artificial. And maturity is taking Jesus at his word here, and seeing sin at a heart level, at a deeper level. Seeing that the problem isn't just that you do evil things, the problem is that you have evil thoughts, and your evil deeds ultimately arise from a rebellious and evil heart that is turned away from God's order. And maturity is to see each of these. And we'll see this for the next few weeks. He he gives a pretty comprehensive list of ways in which we're we're prone to think that our outward acts are what are are valuable. Um, The way I talk about this is, you know, if, if, if there's a practical instruction here, he's confronting the immature disconnect that we have often between our actions and our heart. And as a result, that's what we will do. Those of us shaped by and made new by the grace of God in Jesus Christ will be doing the same thing. We'll be thinking about sin more maturely in a way that's connecting the state of our own heart and attitude with our exterior this is an otherworldly way of receiving the gospel it's good news and i would contend you either see it or you don't because after all remember that there's a, a higher principle god has made you and me in his inexhaustible image human beings are beautiful and complex and so anytime you try to simplify that or objectify that, you are rebelling against, remember, God's his his desire for you and I to thrive. Any anytime you diminish that, you're dehumanizing someone. And therefore you are rebelling against the image that they were, the image of God they were created in. And so anytime you boil people down and oversimplify things, we love to do this, right? We love to boil people down into binaries. And and we rarely see that that is a form of dehumanizing. It's a form of disregarding God's beautiful and inexhaustible image in them. Be wary of any time anyone wants to boil you down into two teams, right? Right or left, right? Or like, have you heard that, like, whenever we try, it's our way of coping with the confusion. Humans are infinitely complex, and so we're like, well, I can't, can't quite face the complexity. How about I just boil it down to a simple thing, right? Well, all those people are, right, fill in the blank. And anytime you do that, be wary, you're dehumanizing. In that sense, you, are, you, are, you may not be murdering that person outwardly, but in your own heart, you have said that the inexhaustible image of God in you is gone. You're worthless. And so anytime you boil people down into a dehumanizing category, Jesus shows that behind the scenes is sin. Behind the scenes, right? I can if, Anytime if, if you were if you were trying to boil down my desire for my daughters to not get like like if, you, if you're trying to boil down my daughter's thriving into not getting hit by a car, you you already don't understand what it means for be, me to be their father and them to be my children, right? You you are, you already get, you don't get it. I want so much more for them. And the same thing is true. Whenever whenever you try to boil God's inexhaustible image made visible in humanity down to something less than what it is, then we've already rebelled against God's good design for you and for me. Namely, that we would thrive. It's the very heart of God. And Jesus shows, in this sense, the God way to be human. It's instructive, isn't it? That not just our deeds, but our thoughts are on display to God. A beautiful story you hear in the anointing of King David, who ended up being a great king in Israel's history, but wasn't very impressive looking as a young shepherd boy. And as Samuel anoints him, he profoundly declares that human beings look at people one way, but God, he tells us, sees the heart. So, notice though, Jesus gives not just prudent advice, but he also gives us an eschatological warning. Now, that's a big word. I don't expect you to use it. But I do want you to know what I mean. We'll talk about this regularly in Jesus' teaching, because there, we saw this even even the last time we were we were walking. There's, there's like there's this eternal dire consequence to what Jesus is saying, and I don't want to diminish that. There's there's many that would love to gloss over that. Like I didn't really mean that. But listen to what he says, as if it weren't enough to say your evil thoughts are on display to God and will be judged. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, or excuse me, in verse 22, he says, you will, in this sense, be liable, not just to the council, but to the hell of fire, this idea that there's an eternal judgment. And so therefore, because it's so important, now you'll see in verse 23, something you see in in not all, but most of these antitheses, there's a so or therefore. Now I'll point them out as we get there, but he's like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, so then, or therefore, or So then, do this. And here's the application. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So we have to unpack that a little bit. What's he talking about when he says bringing that gift to the altar? And how does that have, like, in that sense, penalty that, that he describes in verse 22 as hell? Well, Jesus is using hyperbole here. In some sense, he's using hyperbole for all six of these, but that is, he's, he's pointing to something that is urgent. It must be dealt with immediately. And it's incredibly instructive, I think, for us that Jesus is saying that, that what he's bringing is going to be comprehensive, and it will include reconciling relationships that are broken. So therefore, if the heart of God is for the thriving of his children and his people... Then to relate to God necessarily means to reflect his heart towards one another. So the punishment here isn't just that you might have, uh, you know, like beef with your friend. The punishment here is because in so doing and, and not desiring reconciliation does not rightly reflect God's heart to the world. So let's parse out. If you're offering your gift at the altar, there would have been one place, there would have been one altar, and that would have been in Jerusalem. People would have traveled a long way. Let me just kind of illustrate how like how, how urgent this is. Like they would have traveled a long way and then they would have a grain offering maybe. Um, and then and if it says here that they would have recalled um, that they were supposed to you know, go be made right with, with their brother, then he says, leave the grain offering or the, the offering, the tithe or whatever it might be, leave it there. Hear how crazy it is, right? At that point, people are sacrificing pigeons, goats, and he's saying like, hey, leave your grain unattended and go reconcile with your brother. Hear the urgent nature of that. Like, hear how, in this sense, what I want you to kind of make a turn now is to, I've shown you how practical this is, of of how instructive this is for us to think about sin and how Jesus talks about sin in a way that we begin to put it to death and see it rightly. But here, it, it starts to become impractical. He says, leave the grain offering where there's other people or other animals that would eat it. Leave it there in order to be made right with your brother. Because the, the grain offering that would have been a sacrifice, that would have, in this sense, pictured atone, the atoning work for the sin we've committed against God, is in this sense he said, put it on hold, leave it there. Don't even think that you can be made with, right with God if, if, in this sense, you aren't made right with your brother. And he gives an incredibly impractical way to illustrate it. Leave the grain offering there, where the pigeons and other things, Right. Now, think of it this way, if you were to apply this to to say the way we invest and give, most of you you don't give grain offerings, you sell the grain and you give money to the mission and vision of the church, right? Praise God for that I comm- again, I commend you that this isn't this is this is a place where where like a heavy handed sermon on giving could be inserted. I'm not going to do that I commend you, God's blessing you in this but but think of it this way, imagine you were The primary way that, and thank God for this. I know this is this is out of many of your comfort zone. I praise God for this, but uh, it's helped us thrive through COVID nineteen. But most of our giving is done online, and I want to just encourage you. That's a blessing to to our staff. Uh, That's less that's like that's less error for paper trail, like having a a paper trail run off into a rabbit trail, right? Like there's a lot of accountability. That's really great. But in that sense, you're giving you're, you're giving your information to give over the internet right? And that's that's a that's somebody born in the 80s who described the internet, right? I Just give me, you know what I mean? But think of it this way. It's like I was on my way uh, to give and invest in and, and offer a gift in generosity and gratitude for what God's done for me in Christ, right? And I was on my way and I started to give my uh, I, you know, I logged on and I, and I was I was I'm I'm, I'm I'm connected virtually here and and think of it this way like I, I brought my my routing number my account information right and I realized I was unreconciled to someone and I just and and basically you look at the internet and go like hey internet I gotta go be made right with my brother I'm gonna leave my account information right here I'll be right back this is really important this reflects the heart of God for my brother or my sister. So I just want you to know I'm going to leave my account information right here on the internet and I'll be right back. Do you see how impractical this is? It's not just that it's a postponement. It is that. Think of it this way. It's a forfeiture. It's an abandonment. If you leave it there, it's gone. Do you see the urgency here? Jesus is saying that if you really are going to live in a way that reflects the heart of God, then you wouldn't even consider, you wouldn't even think that you have anything to offer before God if ultimately your heart didn't reflect his heart for your brother and your sister. Do you hear how impractical that is? Because after all, like, could you do anything at that point? Is there anything we can do in response to who God is and what he's done for us if, if ultimately I have to be at perfect peace with my brother and my sister? I Think of it this way. I, I can't... hear how impractical this is. It's, it's impractical because it's practically impossible. I can't be angry. I can't insult anyone. I can't look down on anyone. I can't think myself better than anyone. And I have to make sure that I'm at peace with the people around me. Even if they're accusation is valid look at verse 25 come to terms quickly with your accuser this is this is pretty profound like up to this point it's as if to say here's here's how we reconcile with brothers and sisters who are who are also in this sense part of god's family but then he he amps it up it gets more impossible it's as if now he's talking about people who are not Christians, who are not believers, who are not a part of the household of faith. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. While you're going with him to court, you see elsewhere in the New Testament that like, in that sense, Christians ought not be suing one another, right? They, in that sense, they, if they sue one another, it shows a great, the rupture has already happened, right? The, the, bro, the brokenness in the relationship has already, has already happened. But here it says like, It's assuming that someone apart from the household of faith, apart from God's people, would be accusing you. But on the way to court, settle with him. Settle with him quickly. Because after all, if you don't, then you'll experience judgment. And then the judgment will hand you over to the guard, and then there will be consequences, and you won't get out. Again, do you hear that that eschatological, that is the end-time warning? This eternal, long-lasting warning? Not just for not reflecting the heart of God towards his people, his children, but also for not reflecting the heart of God for people who are not his children. Do you feel how impossible this is? Do you feel the weight of this? Think of it this way. Health as a church Health in our gospel communities, health and discipleship will be to take this seriously. Is to see sin from this perspective and to regularly ask questions, not just to address your behavior, but to get to the heart of the matter. A healthy church will do that. An unhealthy church won't ask about your heart. Right? Just be present. Be nice. Don't make a mess. Don't do bad things, man. Cool. You can call that a lot of things. You can't call it by Jesus teaching here at the church. Because after all, if you want to minimize your sin and say, oh, it's not that bad. I I was an accident. I did a bad thing. I'm not a bad person. Which... Newsflash. Anytime anyone's ever told me that, it's immediately followed by or immediately preceded by something awful they did, right? Like, I did this awful thing. I'm not a bad person. It's like, which one is it? Did you do the awful thing or are you not a bad person? Because I don't see how those things happen at the same time, right? But health is to go like, oh my goodness, that awful thing I did came from a deep, dark place in my heart. And it's healthy for us to think about this. And rather than just say, stop doing that, ask questions like, why do you think you did that? Where in your heart do you need to be softened by God's grace to want the right thing? I want you to see here, having a deep view of sin is what makes us the church. It frees us from meaningful friendship. It protects us. Because after all, when outward division and When outward animosity is visible, in that sense, as Christians, we could go like, hey, you know, stop doing that. But as Christians, we see and go like, oh, there's something in the heart. There's a grace that needs to be deeply applied, not just a rule that needs to be enforced. Do you feel the impossibility of this, though? Do you feel how practically impossible, in that sense, impractical this is? How do we get out of this? Can't be angry, can't insult anyone, can't be mad at anyone, can't have anyone mad at me. Like, is it, I mean, is there anyone who's like nailed it? Right? Yeah, like. It's impossible, it's impractical. And I want you to see why. In the end, Jesus is introducing us to what the perfect, obedient person looks like. And there's a picture. So you've seen how it's practical. It's helpful, isn't it? It's instructive. I, here's the thing. You will see sin differently. You will see your behavior differently. Jesus even says later that you'll see words differently. They overflow out of our hearts, right? And that's, and that's, and that's, that's awful because we would love to just go, I'm just saying. And that's, okay, done. I forgive you for what you just said. Or I'm like, that, that's, that settled it. Oh, you were just saying. My bad, right? Jesus says that's not how that works. Words come from the heart. And that's incredibly, it's, it's incredibly practical, right? We'll, you and I, here's a, you are going to grow as you think about sin that way. You're going, to, you're going to grow and we'll encourage that. And deep confession will happen and deep grace will be applied and deep life change will happen. It's incredibly instructive and practical. But here's the problem. It's impractical because you can't meet the standard. And so what you see in the way that it's practical and impractical is you see a picture. Jesus is painting a picture of someone. Jesus is painting a picture of someone who, even though they're accused, doesn't respond in anger, who doesn't look down on anyone who doesn't insult anyone, who doesn't retaliate against anyone. He's painting a picture of someone who settles debts. Did you catch that? And settles them quickly. He settles them definitively. He's painting a picture of himself. Because Jesus gives prudent advice. Absolutely. I'm grateful for that. But this view of sin is impractical because it's practically impossible. You can't measure up with this view of sin. Because after all, if I said, as long as you don't kill anyone this week, you're good. You might, I'm assuming the best, right? You might have a great week, right? You might, cool. Not a murderer. But what if I said, you must not have any unjust anger or self-righteous anger towards anyone this week, and then you'll be good. That's crushing, isn't it? That's more than any of us can bear. If I say, hey, be made right with everyone you know, either because you are rightly accused and you owe them something, or even if there's something else, something accidental that you need to be made right for, it's practically impossible. We can't actually do it. And so this otherworldly view of sin leads us to an otherworldly view of ourselves. And so here's what I want you to be encouraged with because it's impossible and impractical we're cheering one another on to uncover the fight to uncover and fight sin deeply until Jesus comes back this is what this means for us if we realize that the perfect obedient person that's being described in this passage isn't you there's actually a lot of freedom but here's the hard part this is where a lot of people want like most of you want me right now to stop the sermon You want me to stop and say, all right, guys, be perfect. Yeah, you better do it. And many of you want that. You want that for so many different reasons. You want me right now to say, do better, be better, work harder, try harder. Because it's not nearly as offensive as grace. And we encourage people in the life of our church, not because they try harder. We certainly do. But because our heart is changed to do so, in that sense, one of the beauties of Sabbath, maybe for some of you, that's today, the Lord's Day. It's a beautiful day. Like it, it celebrates a, a kind of a big thing that happened on a Sunday two thousand years ago. Kind of, kind of a cool thing. And some people are like, "Well, what do I do on the Sabbath?" And I always say, "Like nothing." For some of you, that's the hardest thing to do, right? Do nothing to please God. Do nothing to make God love you, right? And it's, it's a defiant word, isn't it? For somebody to say like, hey, are you do, what are you doing to please God today? Nothing, zero. I can't, it's impossible. But Jesus, the perfect obedient one, has purchased all the pleasure of God my eternity can handle. You get it? This is where many of you would want me to stop and say, go do better. Be, be, stop being angry, man. Go, go make things right. But here's the thing, it would imply that you have the ability to do so. It would imply, and you wish that were true, right? And you want me to tell you it's true. You want me to, You got this, man, you're going to totally be righteous this week. But here's the thing, because it's impossible, Jesus alone, Jesus alone can accomplish it for us. And here's the thing, right now you want me to tell you what to do. And here's the problem, I don't want to do that. I want to tell you about what Jesus has done. And so when you see this perfect picture of a person who doesn't have anger, who forgives, who reconciles, if anything in you is like, man, I can totally be that, you haven't met Jesus. Instead, we see this picture, this silhouette of a perfect, righteous person who doesn't harbor a grudge and reconciles and pays debts, and we're meant to go like, I know what that looks like. And Matthew wants us to, right? Over the next several chapters, as it happens, Matthew's like, do you remember? This is what he looks like. This is what he looks like. Peter tells it in chapter 2 this way. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. Well, how do I do that? Well, I look at him, and I realize he committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. And hear this. See the picture. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and oversee of your souls. Get this, the impossibility of righteousness shows us the impossible power of grace. When we begin to see the picture of what this righteous and beautiful and obedient person looks like, and we realize it's Jesus, we're free then. Think of it this way. Since God's law, as it's applied here practically at the deepest level to the heart, and since God's law is inflexible, then his grace is indispensable. And I can't but remind you that you can't do this. You can only see Jesus, and then, this is how it works. You want to be the person who has less anger? See that God should have rightfully destroyed you out of his wrath, and he didn't. You want, to, you want to be better at reconciling and growing? Mean, I we're going to cheer one another on in this. But you want to be better at reconciling to your spouse, to your friends, to people, to enemies, to, to people outside of the, the household of faith? If you want to be better at that, then you have to just marvel at how Jesus did it. Otherwise, you'll try, your own way to, you'll try to do it your own way, right? But you won't have the heart for it unless you begin to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is laying out a life that is perfect and that's really great until you realize that you're not. Think of it this way. I can see your sin and I can cover it with forgiveness because Jesus saw my sin and he covered it with his. So let me ask you a couple of practical questions. right? How might the Holy Spirit begin to reveal your relationship to unrighteous anger? I say unrighteous. I believe there is a righteous anger, a righteous anger against sin. But here's the hard part. <laughs> you and I really don't know the difference very well, do we? <laughs> like our anger, even if it starts in righteousness, like, man, that was wrong and sinful. It, like, I don't know how long that lasts, a few seconds, and then it immediately goes into vengeance, doesn't it? Right? Like that was sin against God. And then immediately, you fool, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you're better at hiding it, Right? But think of it as like the only way that you'll ever have that anger removed from you is when you realize that God's no longer angry with you. The only way you'll ever be able to stop holding a grudge is when you realize God is not. It's the only way. The default mode of the human heart is an impossible state of unrighteousness. And Jesus says, the way that you begin to show that in your outward relationships, reconciling with one another, is evidence that you have seen the way that God has reconciled you in Christ. Make no mistake about it, this, the way through here is not to minimize sin. Jesus is the opposite. Like, this is worse than you think, right? The thing you thought you were doing well on, you're not. And he'll keep doing that for the next five times, right? Instead, it's meant to rub our nose in its impossibility, to rub our nose in the sinful state of our own hearts until we have no other choice but to cry out for help. And here's what you need to know. This is the paradox. The minute you realize this is impossible for you to accomplish. I mean the minute like that it's it's the instant your heart is open to see what Christ has accomplished for you. It leads us to worship. Now, I know many of us would want at this point to, be, to hear anything other than grace, right? To hear that there is an unmerited favor. We really, down deep, we want to know, I can do it, I have merit, I can earn it. And yet the good news here is that the perfect person outlined in Matthew chapter five is not you and it's not me, it's Jesus. So what do I do with all this sorrow and failure? Well, realize that Jesus has known your failings, he has known your weakness, he knows your unrighteous anger, loves you anyway. And when you know him, your efforts at obedience actually start to be fruitful. They stop being self-serving. And the silhouette of the new and perfect life is that Jesus gives us the perfect life. And while you might want me to tell you to go and do it, instead, we're invited here to see that Jesus has already done it. Think of it this way. Our God and Father is absolutely bent on redemption. He is committed to it. He has given all of himself in Jesus to accomplish it to demonstrate it, to show it. And he does so by showing us the depth of our sin. Because the deeper you realize your sin goes, the deeper you realize God's grace is for you. It's shocking for you. But the breathtaking thing is that, after all, like, if God can forgive me of my deeds, that's cool. I'm glad. But if God can forgive me of my thoughts, holy smokes, That's really good news. That's the best possible news. And the pronouncement of forgiveness for that is what softens our heart. It melts us to receive him. We have a picture painted of the perfect child of God and his name is Jesus. It's baffling. It's like the sun, right? It illuminates, but in some ways it's impractical because if you stare at it, it burns your eyes out. And the same thing is true here. So in just a moment, we're going to close in prayer this time, and, and then we're going to begin in prayer to prepare ourselves to meet Jesus at, the, at his table. We celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. You might call it the Eucharist. And I hope that this text has prepared us for this. Because after all, there, for some of you, 1 Corinthians 11 says, if your heart is not right before God, then the brave and good right thing is not to drink condemnation on your own head, and, and it's to abstain. Sing with us. Praise God with us. Right? Thank God for the people around you uh, who are who are in this case, you know, participating in the Lord's Supper. But that's not for you today, and that's okay. There's mercy, there's 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 mercy and grace available for you, but it wouldn't be right. Because after all, you'd be drinking to something that's not true. At least not in your own heart and life. But I want you to be careful. That might lead you to think well, I'm not going to take communion today. You know, because this person is unreconciled to me. That, that, that might be the case for you. That might be the brave and right thing to do. And for you, it's to say, hey, I'm not going to pretend to meet with the Lord until I'm reconciled with this brother. But here, be careful. You might be tempted to think, I'm not going to take... or like it, it, it might imply that the other people in the room are saying, I'm taking communion today because nobody's mad at me. And that's not true. And you'd miss the point of the Lord's table. We take communion because of Jesus' perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection. We can say, I'm taking communion, not because no one else is mad at me. Certainly people are. You might be mad at me right now, right? I'm taking communion because God's not mad at me. Because of Jesus, I am received. Because of the righteous, perfect example and sacrifice of Jesus, I am accepted. And the wrath of God has been absorbed by Jesus And he didn't retaliate, he didn't hold a grudge, and he settled the score. He settled it before, did you hear that? He settled the score before we made it to the judgment. And judgment day was averted. And we can receive the broken body and shed blood of Christ, not because we're perfectly right with everyone, but because of Christ, we're perfectly right with the Father. And that overwhelms you so much it starts to remove anger. It starts to soften you to be a minister of reconciliation. It starts to do something amazing. There's evidence in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that God has poured his wrath out on him so that now we receive not his anger, but his acceptance. So let's pray together and prepare to receive that. God, thank you so much that you are so merciful and good to us. Thank you that you have cared for us. You have cared for us in ways that we weren't even ready to receive You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have been the perfect and righteous example that Jesus teaches. Thank you that in Jesus' teaching, he's not just giving us a a burden that we could never carry. Instead, he is giving us a picture of what he has done for us. Thank you that all of our needs are met in Jesus. Thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we can, by faith, turn from our sin, even in the depths of our own soul, and receive grace there. Because of Jesus, we can turn from our sin and be made right to you. Because of Jesus, what awaits us is not an end-time judgment, but instead an end-time feast. Thank you that in Jesus we are not invited to hide or experience shame and condemnation, but thank you that in Jesus we're invited to a table where he gives not just a great feast, but he gives his very self. God, help us as we prepare to take this, as we prepare to observe this with one another, do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Satisfy the righteous demands of the law in Jesus that we might receive it by faith and that this wafer and this drink might become a mysterious miracle that we receive, a celebration of all that Christ has done for us. Help us also to have the courage to if this is not for us to celebrate, if, if, if that's not true of us, then help us to simply be invited this morning to repent and to believe and to hear that Jesus has met the righteous demands that God requires. He's no longer angry at us. For the rest of us, help us to receive this miracle by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.